Hey, this is Ken M. Padawan J. Coach Duffy. From the Ocho Duro Parlay Hour podcast. Every week, the ODPH is talking sports, movies, TV, comics, and more. It's always a parlay of topics on each episode. You can find the ODPH on Apple Podcasts, Google Podcasts, iHeartRadio, Spotify, Stitcher, Podbean, and wherever you find great podcasts, such as the one you're listening to right now. Don't forget to check out OchoDuroParlayHour.com, where you can find the links to all of the ODPH social media accounts, links to the bands whose music you hear each week on the show, hashtag 607 podcast info, and parlay points, our companion block section of the show. Thanks for listening to the ODPH. Now get back to your regularly scheduled podcast. You know, keeping up with what's going on in the world can sometimes feel like it's more trouble than it's worth. The news can be scary and make you want to scream. Or there's just simply too much out there to keep up with. But that's why there's the Assorted Goods Podcast. It's the amateur's guide to world events, where each episode we take a closer look at a collection of stories that slip through the cracks of the regular news cycle. So find Assorted Goods on whatever podcast app you use and join me in my attempts to learn a little more about the world, one story at a time. I Saw It on Linden Street, the show dedicated to the joy of finding and appreciation in cult films, exploitation oddities, beloved classics, and all points in between. I'm your host, Chris Roberts, inviting you to join us here at the Linden Street Cinema Experience Theater as we once again dig up a fun cinematic relic from the past. If you're new to the show, thank you so much for joining us. Now, this isn't your standard film review, rather it's a synopsis of a film that we feel deserves to have another inspection, with some background thrown in on the actors, information on the director, and hey, if I'm doing my job, perhaps you'll get a half-amusing story out of me. Fair be warned, while we don't cover all aspects of plot, we do discuss endings and spoilers. So, if you'd like to be surprised, please give the film a viewing before you listen to us. If you like us, and hey, I would hope that you do, please recommend this podcast to a friend, give us a favorable review, subscribe. We are continuing this month's theme, Not For Kids. That's our selection of some interesting animated films that are decidedly for more mature audiences. This week, we get things off to a good and weird start with René Leloup's surrealist animated cult classic, 1973's Fantastic Planet. Join us! This week's selection, like so many things I discovered in college, was first introduced to me in 2002 by the one and only Mighty Xerxes. It was done as a lark. We were hanging out in his home, having returned from feasting on a delightful meal of Angus cheeseburger plates with mountains of steak fries and ketchup from a local eatery, and we were looking to settle in for the evening and digest with some films and video games. A conversation, though, as it happens to pop up, was what exactly were we going to watch for the evening? And somehow we meandered into, you know, just the genre of strange animation that each other had seen. And as he ducked into his collection, he popped back out with a single disc in his hand. Have you seen Fantastic Planet? Nope. Well, in one fell swoop, it was put on, and I sat through what I can only describe as a fever dream come to life. You know, I'm talking about like the really good ones, you know, where you're seeing the toaster talk about how he thinks the raccoon that lives on top of the refrigerator is having some sort of thing with the neighbor lady. And when you get back from the store, would you mind picking him up just a pint of gin and a carton of Damascus figs? No, just me. Maybe I've said too much. Regardless, the film blew my mind, and once again, I found myself wanting to dig into it further, not to mention get a copy for myself to peruse at my own leisure, as well as, you know, use it to inflict strange cinema on those unfortunate people who made the mistake of announcing that they would like to watch films with me in my dorm room. A science fiction story where aliens have enslaved men and are keeping them as pets, or simply exterminating them like they're some sort of rodent? 
visceral images, grotesque creatures, and strange landscapes, all soaked in French surrealism, the likes of which I don't think I can even properly begin to explore here. But hey, like most things in life, if you want to understand how this film came to be, and how it even got made in the first place, you have to start with the man who's responsible for bringing it to the screen. And I'm talking about the director, the artist, René Leloup. René Leloup, a chap who had an interesting trip into becoming an artist. Born July 13, 1929, Leloup himself had always wanted to get into art. He did a stint at art school, studying drawing and painting. He took a leave of absence to become a woodcarver's apprentice and got really into puppetry. World War II, however, interrupted his arc of self-discovery, and after fulfilling his national duty and serving with the French army, the post-war period would see him taking jobs all over the place, doing puppeteering as well as working in commercial advertising. But still, he drifted on, jumping careers just to experience different things. At the age of 31, Lelou found himself working a gig that would ultimately transform him into the, quote, official creative force and get him the recognition he deserved. He became, of course, a counselor at a psychiatric clinic in Loire. While there, he began to organize clinics and workshops for the patients, essentially what was an early form of art therapy for those receiving treatments. And when those patients created some, oh, let's call them inventive shadow puppets, Leilu got the bright idea to gather some of his fellow interns and use those patient puppets to create a short film, what would become 1960s Tic Tac. The film was sold to French TV, and Lelou was off to the races. I mean, come on, if you can't financially profit and artistically make good on the mentally ill, then what exactly can you profit off of? Still utilizing patient art, Lelou created a follow-up film that same year, titled Monkey's Teeth, for which he would go on to win the Prix Emile Con for Best French-Made Animated Film. Upon attending the ceremony that year to receive his award, Leilu met his future collaborator, Roland Topor, who was the new wonderkind of the European avant-garde cartoon world. Yes, there is such a thing. <laughs> In his early 20s still, Topor was already palling around with Fernando Arabal and Alejandro Hordowski, founding purposely the shocking surrealist-inspired panic movement with them. The Panic Movement involved a lot of live performance art, nudity, violence, that sort of thing, and quickly that stopped being something that was performed in front of people and was translated instead into cinematic projects. Trust me, Horodowski is on the block for a future episode, I just really don't have the energy to dig into his work right now, nor do I have enough booze on hand to do it properly. Torpor himself, though, was nothing to sneeze at. As the decades would roll on, he would go on to have successful interactions with many, many filmmakers, including Roland Polanski, Jev Makenyev, and Werner Herzog. Leilu and Topor started working on an animated short that would become 1965's Le Temps Mortes, or The Dead Times, and it was a bit of anti-war satire that focused on man's link to violence, being stuck in cycles of endless war, noting that it was the time between the conflicts that were listed as being the dead times. The irony, peace is the bad part of this. That was followed up with 1966's Les Escargots, which is a humorous bit of sci-fi about a farmer so desperate to help his crops grow that he begins to cry over the lack of vegetables, and he's astounded when he finds his tears have miraculous properties to make his land flourish. Now, a side effect of this is snails who eat the vegetables grow into massive sizes, and they end up terrorizing the countryside with their slow-moving bulk. Both of these were well-received, and you can actually find both of them and watch them for free, as of this recording at least, on YouTube. 
So with encouragement from their producers, Lelou and Topper were challenged to create a new full-length project. Now, the duo settled on adapting a Stephen Wool 1957 novel, Ohms by the Dozen, to be their next project. Wool, as it turned out, was the pen name of one Pierre Parault, who himself was a dental surgeon who would moonlight as a science fiction novelist when he wasn't busy removing wisdom teeth. He had penned this moralistic tale about men who had been transplanted to an alien world inhabited by these technologically advanced giants, who treat men at best as pets and as worst vermin, and basically view men as being something that needs to be exterminated from their world. It was the perfect fodder for some surrealist art. Under the working title of The Savage Planet, Lelou and Torpor were ready to make cult history. But such a feature would still prove difficult for a number of reasons. First and foremost being that France at this time didn't have any real large animation companies to, excuse the pun, draw on. They ended up joining forces with Argos Films that was under control of one Antole Dalman, who had helped them find creative partners in what was then Czechoslovakia where government-sponsored endowments for animation existed. Thus, Argos would partner with Jiri Trinka Studio in 1967, and such a new film would be produced as a joint venture that would end up being fraught with problems, both financial and, more importantly, political. You see, the project was forced to be put on pause in 1968 due to just the slight minor setback of the Soviet Union invading Czechoslovakia. Worried about the political interpretations of their film, the animation itself was shut down for over a year, but again quietly resumed in 1969, mainly due to the fact that work on the film was bringing in jobs to the occupied nation, and party members were willing to look the other way as to what would have been viewed as some minor work of art, at least in exchange for French money. It would take four more years to properly finish the project. Artwork-wise, the look of the film was both born from practical, budgetary decisions, meeting actual style that the, you know, artists had to create something that was truly unique-looking, which became somewhat of a fusion between something you would see in a Terry Gilliam animated sequence that you'd find in a Monty Python episode, fused almost with the Hanna-Barbera-style 2D uh, lockdown action where you would move the background to intimate movement while keeping your subject in the center pane. Thus, overlaid paper cutouts, in-camera dissolves, and quick pans over static images all were used to give animation to come together in a unique style that made this movie truly its own, rather than, you know, a cop-out, a cheap dodge to avoid actual animation. And in this case, it works. It's so otherworldly. You don't know what you're seeing. For character design, ohms, at least themselves, are regular cross-hatched pictures of men and women in tunics that one would find reminiscent of Greek or Roman society. Nothing too shocking there. But for the race of the giant otherworldly drogs, we get into some trippy territory here. Now, sorry, here, allow me to interrupt me. Throughout the film, especially if you're watching with subtitles on, although the pronunciation remains entirely the same, the drogs are spelled both with the D, but said the same, and likewise, it'll sometimes pop up on the screen as being referred to as, well, they're still called drogs, but they spell it with a T. I'm sticking with the hard D version for now, since that seems to be the most well-accepted whenever you look up anything on the film. But both are technically correct. Anyhow, sorry. They're depicted as being giants, blue-skinned with gill-like ears, unblinking red eyes, whose pupils will occasionally disappear when in meditation, or they'll go white when they're unconscious. Coupled with the ability to transmogrify themselves through machinations of their own, and at other times with the help of biotechnology, their detached, cold manner is quite different, but nonetheless 
a horrifying example of how the uncanny valley principle can be brought to the big screen, even with animation. Okay, I'll now admit this. I'm going to be an ugly American here, and I'm only going to really focus on the English voice cast. But I will say for this, back in the day, it had many prominent French voice actors, including Jean Topar, Jan Valmont, Yves Barsac, Gerard Hernandez, Jennifer Grake, and Mark Lester, all providing voices for the French audio side. When it came time to dub in an English track through New World Pictures, you got some interesting talent attached to this film. Mike Gruner of Jaws 2 fame came on voicing a young tear, while Barry Bostwick of Rocky Horror Picture Show and Megaforce fame, a future episode for sure, was our narrator and voicing the adult tear. Hal Smith, character actor extraordinaire, or as many of you would know him as Otis from The Andy Griffith Show, he voiced the characters of the Sorcerer as well as the drog leader Master Sin. Marvin Miller of Robbie the Robot fame voiced several drag leaders and ohms, as did Janet Waldo, that's Judy Jetson herself, voicing the hollow log chieftain as well as several other ohm women. Olan Sewell was the voice of cartoon Batman throughout the 60s up until the 80s. He gave voice to also some several drag politicians, including Master Taj, and of course the role of Tiwa was voiced by Cynthia Adler. So I gotta say, that's a pretty decent array of talent, if you ask me. Ugh. Well, here, listen, I could go on a bit more, but... Truly, you've been really patient up to this point. So how about this? Let's just go ahead and roll this very strange trailer. What do you say? Francois proclaims, a French planet shines in the sky of the Cannes Festival. says the film cast a spell on us from the first image to the last. Le Monde, humor, fantasy, poetry. An exciting film. success at Cannes. The beautiful story we've long awaited. A fantastic animated French film. An event and a complete success. Fantastic Planet, winner of the Special Grand Prix Cannes Film Festival, Special Jury Prize, Trieste Film Festival, Gold Medal Atlanta, First Prize Tehran. The world press acclaims Fantastic Planet. We open on the planet Yam where we see a terrified woman running with her baby away from sets of horrifyingly large blue hands. Hands that continue to flick, knock around, and drop the poor woman from greater and greater heights, all as she desperately tries to protect her child from them. Eventually, she is killed from being dropped too high up, and we get to see, then, 
that she has been toyed with by a group of large alien children, the Drogs. Disappointed that they can no longer play with the wild Ohm, they are about to turn their attentions to the child, but they flee when Master Sin, who is effectively the Prime Minister of this world, and his daughter, Tiva, approach. It doesn't move. What a shame we can't play with her anymore. Oh, look, Father. A female omen, her baby. Do you suppose she's dead? I think so, Tiva. And the baby? And why is he crying? I don't know. It may be that he's afraid or he's hungry. We can't leave him here like this. May I keep him, Father? May I, Father? I'll take good care of him. Very well, Tifa. We can't let the poor animal die. That was the first time I saw the drug Prime Minister. He saved my life and linked his fate with mine. He was unaware of this, of course, until much later. Tiva feels sorry for the own baby boy, and, smitten with the desire to keep him as a pet, requests and is allowed by her father to take him home. She keeps the baby and names him Ter, reflecting on the ohms of the past supposedly coming from a planet called Terra long ago, before they were brought here to Yom. Tiva brings him into their home and fits Ter with a control collar that allows her to drag him around and force him to bend to her will. It is noted that while this is not to be used unless Ter himself is misbehaving, the concept of being able to drag Ter around does indeed hurt him. Ter begins to take over the narration, confirming that the Ohms live here now, and that he himself is lucky to be considered a domesticated Ohm, treated as a pet, although he still looks for opportunities to both rebel against Tiva's control and basically just try to eke out an existence. He's forced to perform tricks, don humiliating clothes, and on occasion, Tiva makes him fight other Ohm pets for their owner's amusement. The Drogs and their massive overlords, they're the first to admit that Ohms have some rudimentary intelligence, but they don't believe that they're ever going to become as advanced as the Drogs. And those ohms that live in the wild are periodically exterminated, as one would do with vermin, on a very much rotating basis. Master Sin himself does admit that he admires the species' adaptability, but he agrees that wild ohms, if left unchecked, end up causing damage and breaking things. Therefore, their extermination cycle needs to be scheduled far more regularly. Their faculty for adaptation, as you say, Master Ka, might indicate a somewhat advanced evolution. Ohms may have a far shorter lifespan than ours, but don't forget, they reproduce much more rapidly. Of course, if the animal evolves, we've not yet ascertained that fact. But no, one can ascertain that there was considerable damage and chaos wreaked by the Ohms in the overs of Jax and Teles. Although the number of domesticated ohms is easily controllable, it appears that in reality the number of savage ohms far exceeds our accepted totals. We de-ohmize the savage ohms every three cycles. But I question if this is adequate. Unfortunately, our methods are quite limited. More stringent measures must be implemented. New extermination methods are under study. But I doubt if they'll suffice. Tiva is fond of Ter, and while she sees him as her personal living doll, she's still protective of him and cares for him, bringing him along with her when she takes her lessons, stroking him and holding him as she has information beamed directly into her mind through a set of earphones that she dons. This is her version of schooling. Now, unknown to her and the rest of the drugs, when Ter is sitting on her lap or in her hands, his collar equally picks up those lessons that Tiva is receiving, and thus, Ter learns to read, understands science, math, biology, understands the flora and the fauna around him. 
Terror begins to enjoy the lessons too, and he tries to secretly learn more whenever he can, although he is caught by Master Sin, who doesn't suspect that the Ohm is actually learning, more he feels that Terror is a distraction to Tiva's studies, so he ends up forbidding the Ohm from being around during lesson time. A single drog week, though, is the equivalent of one human year. So, Ter matures into a confident, smart, young Ohm who longs for his freedom. When Tiva comes of age and becomes old enough to take part in what is referred to as the meditation ritual that all drogs engage in, she begins to lose interest in Ter, and that in turn allows him the ability to finally escape and gain freedom. Drogs will sit and have their consciousness leave their bodies, their pupils going away as they sit in repose. Small bubbles with their visage will float skyward and then mingle with other drog consciousness. It's all part of the culture's socialization and continuation. Ter ends up stealing Tiva's headphones and runs out into the wilds of Yam. Tiva does try to call him back with the remote-controlled collar, but... Ter is saved when the headset he's holding gets pinned between branches of a tree, stopping him from being dragged back into drog civilization. He is found and saved by Mira, a female Ohm, who ends up cutting off his collar and helps him take the headset with them back to her village at the Great Tree. Ter is introduced to the chieftain and a distrustful clan sorcerer, as he begins to try to explain and then warn the other ohms in the tree clan that some of the boxes that they have looted from a drag storeroom are actually traps designed to kill ohms, not full of supplies as they had wished. He tries to explain and give warning when village members are leaning against a box that is marked trap. Suspicious of his powers, Ter reveals he understands how to read and that the box says outside what the contents actually are. Ter again attempts to teach more of the members of the tribe with the headset, but he ends up being called out by the sorcerer as being corrupted by drog ways. Accused of evil, Ter is challenged by the sorcerer into a trial by combat against one of his underlings. If Ter wins, he'll be accepted as a full member of the Great Tree Clan and can continue to teach his ways. If he loses, he will be killed in the ring. What comes next is a rather bizarre display. Animals of combat, which are these weird armless beasts with short legs and crocodilian heads, are strapped facing forward onto the chest of Ter and his combatant, with both of the alms having their arms bound to their sides. They are then forced to joust and position themselves, trying to dodge the crushing bites from their opponent's animal, while still maneuvering in to try to get a kill shot with theirs. Much to Mira's horror, Ter is knocked to the ground and receives several bites to his arms and shoulders before he's able to turn the tables on his opponent and can deliver a crushing bite to his enemy's throat. Now considered a full member of the clan, Ter is again allowed to teach his fellow ohms, and is gifted with proper clothing from his comrades. Ter also learns that they are in competition within this park, with the ohms of the Hollow Log tribe, who frequently rob them of food if the opportunity arises. Time moves on, and Ter helps defend the home from animals. He contributes to educating the rest of the clan, and he focuses on being an accepted working member of the group. When out on a food raid, Ter ends up reading a sign and he warns other ohms that the drogs are planning on, quote, de-oming the park where their tree resides. Ter goes out to warn the Hollow Log Clan as well, and he is captured by them as a prisoner, and they're skeptical of his warnings as to what the drogs are actually going to do with them. What were you doing in our territory, eh? came to warn you. Tomorrow the drugs are going to deomize the park. Deomize the park? Is that so? How do you know this? One of our tribes saw it, written on the wall. The Orms of the Great Tree know how to read drug writing now? Ah, uh, don't listen to him. It's a trap. They want us to leave the hollow log. Believe me, the drugs will deomize. Take him away. One of you go look at the walls. Ter is locked up, 
only to awaken in the morning to see that the drogs have already begun to gas the park, spraying down the entire area with pesticides to kill the ohms. Ter leads the remaining survivors out of the log to meet up with the survivors from the Tree Clan, rendezvousing with Mira and the Chieftain before exiting beyond the walls of the park. While trying to stay hidden, though, off to the side of the path, they end up being spotted by two passing drogs. Listen. The drogs. Silence. It smells of bones. What vermin? The Great Council should deomize the park more often. Owning a domestic arm is all right, they're amusing. But all these savage homes, they steal, they're dirty, and they reproduce at an appalling rate. There's a nest of them there. A whole colony. Let's stamp them out. This time, though, instead of running, the ohms decide to fight back and start ensnaring drogs with grappling hooks to pull them down off their feet, stabbing at them with their knives and spears. One of the drogs does manage to get away, but not before witnessing the ohms overpowering his companion and successfully killing him. The two clans officially unite, with the chieftain of the tree clan being killed in the drog fight, leaving the elder of the hollow log tribe to defer leadership to Ter, who takes the surviving alms to an abandoned drog rocket depot, where they begin to work on a long-term plan to escape their tormentors. The drogs themselves overreact to the death of the drog at the hands of the alms, and in spite of Master Sin's feelings that this does prove they are intelligent, the cries to completely destroy the alms, possibly even all of the domesticated ones, drowned out reason from the crowd, and open warfare is declared. I have always opposed deomizing only once every three cycles. The recent events prove how inadequate it is. The murder of a drug. It's unbelievable. Are the drugs so helpless that ohms can kill them this easily? The savage ohms are far more numerous than we had ever imagined. An examination of the corpse revealed an incredible number of bites and wounds. According to the drug who escaped, the ohms attacked in great swarms. Every day, they grow more and more audacious. They reproduce at a frightening pace. Master Sin, it is most distressing to learn that the Uva of Teles is not the only place where deomization has provoked fierce retaliation. Two other Uvas, Gom and Urtana, have experienced similar difficulties. In the deomized park, beside the dead drug, we found two remarkably well-organized ohm nests. Even more disturbing and inexplicable is the fact that in one of these nests, boxes of stolen goods were arranged by categories. Since they had not been opened, how could the ohms have known their contents? I consider it essential that we impose more drastic measures against the ohms. I propose that the parks be deomized twice each cycle. It is also imperative that we impose strict controls on the breeding and the sale of all domestic ohms. Much too often, they escape again and join the swarms of savage ohms that infest the parks and other isolated areas. In order to deomize thoroughly, we must use all our latest weapons. We must eliminate all the savage ohms, and I pose the question, should we even keep our domestic ohms? We were wrong to consider ohms as simple, harmless animals. I fear that we have committed an error fraught with most grievous consequences. In ohm time, however, 15 years end up passing, and a thriving city is established out at the rocket depot. Ohms are able to use drug technology to create and repurpose tools and components to make what they need to construct ships to leave off of the world of Yom. Their goal being to fly to a moon that is orbiting Yom, one that the drugs call the Fantastic Planet, to live a life free of their tyranny. They are eventually discovered by the drug hunting drones, and while they're attacked by all kinds of horrible drug technologies, including death rays, spiked vacuums, and rolling sticky balls, 
Terror ends up leading two ships to break free from Yom and travel to the orbiting satellite. It's here that the Alms realize that the fantastic planet is ultimately where all of the consciousnesses of the drogs in meditation end up. Here, the consciousnesses attach themselves to giant statues that act as proxy bodies, which then allows for drogs to have ritualistic engagements in exchanging knowledge, information, and its intimated DNA with other drogs and sentient beings throughout the galaxy. This is what ensures drug reproduction and knowledge. Worried about the massive statues crushing their vessels, Terror orders their ships to fire on the bodies, shattering them, causing unseen psychic anguish to all of the meditating drugs below on the planet Yom. The destruction of these avatars throws drug society into a tailspin. Chaos and panic reign as drug council under the leadership of Master Sin end up suing the Alms for peace, lest they face complete extinction for underestimating the other species. Terror takes over narrating again, noting that as part of the settlement between the two species, both will walk away happy. The Drog will create an artificial satellite to order Yom and leave the Fantastic Planet alone to allow for them to continue meditation. That satellite will be named Terra, and the Alms can live and prosper there happily undisturbed. The drugs will give and share their knowledge and technologies, adding the ohms to a species that they are willing to meditate with. In turn, the ohms will share their ingenuity, resourcefulness, and collective consciousness, and be open to drugs as their neighbors, helping continue the drug species, now treating each other as equals living in newfound harmony. Credits roll. So where do we even start? Well, first, the film itself is so oddly beautiful, while still being equally disturbing. I mean, really, this is nightmare fodder. Take the alien flora and fauna alone, for example. At their best, they look like they could have come out of some sort of Hieronymus Bosch's painting. Uh, you know, leaning towards his depiction of hell in the uh, wonderful work The Garden of Earthly Delights. For example, there is a plant that seemingly has a grinning face with sort of an elephant-esque trunk that plucks these hideous fish birds out of the sky, and then laughing menacingly, it hurls them down to the ground below like some kind of hideous living lawn darts. No explanation is given about this plant. The ohms just keep walking by it, and we take it all in. Hell, even the landscapes the ohms walk. They're forced to traverse these great plains, which include all these stretches of shifting tubal protrusions, not unlike the coils of a length of intestine, which forces them to run across as quickly as possible, lest they stand on one of the shifting lengths and find themselves hurled skyward. Equally trippy, the animals of combat. They're depicted as these ravenous, unstoppable beings, and their savagery knows no bounds. And it's just their small legs being pinned to the body of the combatant that keeps them, you know, in one place. They're so single-focused on killing what's in front of them, the only way for the beast to be safely removed from the winner of such a duel is to quickly stab it in the head before attempting to separate the two beings. It's horrifying, but what's most disturbing about this entire film, to me, is the attack from the flying predator, you know, the one that burrows into the tree of the village with its unsettling, fixed, sawtooth maw, before anteater-style chowing down on the ohms inside. I have found that if you're watching this film in the presence of some heavy drug users, this is usually the scene that really bakes their noodle. But the film is not all horror and shocking surrealism. I have to admit, there are some real moments of sweetness and intriguing concepts when you give it a sit-down and a watch. Tiva, who can be harsh in her playing with terror, has moments of real levity that you would expect from a child. Particularly, there's a very poignant scene where she uses makeup to draw on eyebrows and lashes around her own unblinking eyes, and then powdering her face to look more like an ohm while she's playing with terror. 
While this whole exchange allows Terry the opportunity to play a prank on her and swap her white face powder out for dark, the interaction is meant to show that Terry is sort of exerting a limit on what he's willing to do and attempts to rebel, while equally reinforcing the pet-owner relationship that Tiva has with him. She's both slightly annoyed by his prank, but she teases him right back, blowing black powder onto the little ohm, reminiscent sort of of someone scolding a puppy who stole the sock off the floor. Another thing that's kind of poignant, the ohm mating ritual. They all eat this glowing fruit, they end up removing their tunics, and then they run off into the closest thing this planet has to the woods at night. Tear watches from a great distance, and you see a bunch of lights swirling and whirling, chasing around each other, just like fireflies. But fireflies that are reenacting some sort of fun Sadie Hawkins-esque chase, at least until they go out, indicating that the ohms have paired off and have retreated into the darkness. Or, hey, what about the scene where Tear is fully accepted, and the ladies of the tribe take him out and strip him of all his clothes that he got from the drugs, and they leave him with some strange... Honestly, I really don't know what to call them. So, let's call them knitting slugs, for a lack of a better term. And these animals spray him with foam from head to toe, and then they surround him, and they weave his tunic directly onto his body, much to Tear's amazement. It's a really cool scene, and it's really well done. Now, when I first saw this film back in 2002, the political social commentary was not lost on me, but then again, I truly didn't give it a lot of deep thought. After all, I mean, science fiction has often been a safe place to make poignant allegories for the masses, to convey certain points of view regarding race, class, creed, while also being able to subversively hide it in the folds of what's just been considered, at least for a long time, a more lowbrow genre. Look at old episodes of Twilight Zone or the original Star Trek series. People watched them, there were lessons taught, but it was not considered to be as controversial because it was sci-fi. Direct correlations between the civil rights movement, both in France and in America, could not be missed when this film was released, as well as its commentary on our top-down authoritarianism. You could make correlations to any system of segregation, and hey, in the denouement, you could tie the drug solution of the Ohm problem into a Holocaust allegory. But in the context of the story, again, since peace does get brokered and mutual understanding is established, that last one may be a bit of a push. Now, the drug themselves are not inherently depicted as being evil, rather they're so detached, so self-absorbed that their civilization is superior to all other creatures, they just don't give proper time and consideration to the ohms as being their sentient equals. And when we open with those drug children playing coldly with Tara's mother, they seem surprised that their abusive play leads to her death, you know, like children playing with a fly. It's only when we see Sin and Tiva approach, and we get to see the cold indifference is just part of their societal character, we can kind of put it into a context. Now, domesticated ohms are playthings for children as well, and the wild ones are considered vermin. That is, they will not entertain the notions that ohms have intelligence and cunning until it's far too late for the drugs to stop it. It then just becomes a lesson they learn first through conflict, but then they find it resolved through dialogue, and ultimately with an understanding and mutual respect. So one wonders if during these interesting political times we're experiencing now, this film could suddenly see another renaissance, at least socially being relevant, but hey, I'm not going to hold my breath on that one. Now, I know, you want to know, how was this whole bizarre exercise actually received? Well, unlike many of the things we cover here, this film actually was a hit in its native France. Released at the Cannes Film Festival May of 1973, the film garnered accolades, winning the special prize at the festival that year. It had a limited release in December of 1973 in the United States, where it was oddly first slapped with an R rating from the MPAA. I don't know, perhaps some of these folks were upset at the casual alien nudity that the drugs display, or the few odd shots from great distance of bare ohm forms, but all of it's done very tastefully. 
I personally am just going to chalk it up to this was being labeled as weird and French, and it was probably a knee-jerk reaction. Who knows, perhaps old Jack Valenti himself had seen it and he had thought, hey, we're not showing this, at least not in my country. Regardless, that particular decision was quickly rescinded, and the film was released stateside, January of 1974, wide with a PG rating. Critics, at least on this side of the pond, were pretty much on board. New York, LA Times, both gave it nods of quality and commented on the animation. So you have Howard Thompson and Kevin Thomas singing its praises. No, there always has to be an odd man out, and once again, my second favorite punching bag, critic Gene Siskel, was that voice of disdain. Calling it an animated piece of science fiction pretending to be making a meaningful statement, Dismissively, he decided to let his square flag fly, stating that Fantastic Planet is really much more concerned with parading its grotesque line drawings of snapping lizards, jellyfish with jaws, trees that resemble modernistic floor lamps, and spaceships that look like hot dogs with shower heads, and countryside strewn with small intestines. According to the publicist of this film, the visuals and the story begin to make sense if you have your mind chemically altered. Ladies and gentlemen of the jury, this man has the imagination of a tree stump. I leave it to you this question. Why did we spend 30 years asking him for his opinion on anything? But I digress. Now, I apologize. While I can tell you it was a critical and commercial success, in my digging, I have been unable to find actual final box office returns for the film itself. Suffice to say, if you question the validity of its success, I'll tell you this, director Lalou was able to open his own animation studio in France post this film's release with the profits he made. Now, he still would go on to have issues in getting proper infrastructure in place to really get things rolling, but he was still responsible for bringing big screen adaptations of both the work of the artist Mobius with Time Masters in 1982 to the theater, as well as working with Kazaa for the film Gandahar, which was released, at least in this country, as Light Years in 1987. Both achieved a cult standing in the US, but were not as financially successful as Fantastic Planet. Lalou himself would continue to make short subject films and attempted to get a few other larger projects off the ground before retiring in 1999 to devote himself to teaching art in southwest France. Lalou sadly died of a heart attack March of 2004, but at least happy to say his work continues on, befuddling new generations and surely keeping them on their toes. Now, as the years have rolled on, Fantastic Planet as a film itself, the stock has only risen, both as a cult film as as a shining example of surrealistic art done right. It's often held up as an example of art commenting on intolerance and racism in general, and while modern film enthusiasts will praise its general art design, if you're to go on Rotten Tomatoes right now, at least as of this recording, this film has really settled nicely into having a comfortable 91% fresh rating with critics and an 87% fresh rating with the audience. Once more, Rolling Stone back in 2016 ranked this 36th out of the 40 greatest animated movies ever, beating out Rango, Coraline, Charlotte's Web, and A Grave of Fireflies. I would argue this film is going to continue to have legs as the years roll on and it's an important piece of work that students should see. The version of Fantastic Planet screened here at the LSCE was the 2007 Accent Cinema release, which comes with both the French and English versions of the film, as well as the short animated special Les Escargots, plus interviews with René Leloup, a trailer for the films, photo galleries, as well as a Sean Lennon music video for Would I Be The One, which was a song inspired by the art of this film. And while that hasn't completely disappeared from being something you can get your hands on, you should probably consider that version to be out of print. Amazon Z shops at the time are currently selling copies of it brand new for $120 a throw. However, I'll say this, have no fear, because those good folks at the Criterion Collection have released their own version of the film back in 2016, and they've shined it up like a new penny. 
The transfer looks gorgeous, the colors pop, and it comes with everything I already mentioned from the Accent release, plus it throws in new documentaries about Lulu. It comes with the Roland Topor special Italiques, archival interviews from those involved in the making of, a new essay by film critic Michael Brook. All of that can be yours on Blu-ray for the low price of $27.79. Or, if you'd prefer a DVD copy, that dream can be made real for you for $22.94, which, again, is a steal if you ask me. Now, remember folks, we don't get anything here at the LSCE for telling you where to make purchases. We just feel it's important during these interesting times to keep supporting physical media so that these fine studios who own the rights to all this amazing content that we love to see released, they're just going to keep giving us more of what we want for our consumption. And at the end of the day, isn't that exactly what you want? You want more of these things that you love? Besides, Fantastic Planet is such a unique and strange work of art. For me, if you fancy yourself as being even slightly interested in some surrealistic work, this is one of those that you just can't pass up. So, what are you waiting for? Get out there and get yourself a copy of Fantastic Planet today. So that's going to wrap things up here for this episode of I Saw It on Linden Street. Thank you so much for joining us. If you like us, I would hope that you would please give us a favorable review on Apple Podcasts and hit that subscribe button. Or hey, just do that wherever you're listening to us on. Please swing by, check out our website, thelscep.com, where we have articles, episode links, and comics for you to peruse. I'm proud to announce we've recently been added to Amazon Music, so if you have an Amazon account, simply say, Hey Alexa, play I Saw It on Linden Street today. We're also featured on Podchaser. That's a podcast database for listeners and creators alike. Find us there. Give us a follow and a review if you would, please. And hey, feel free to like any of the lists that we are a part of to give us a boost in those rankings. More reviews and the increased likes, that affects those marvelous algorithms and that makes us more searchable. And then we can share these great films with more people. And you want to do that, don't you? Of course you do. As always, if you'd like to get in touch with us, make a comment, ask a question, send us wonderful things, please email us at lindenstreetcinemaexperience at gmail.com. If writing isn't your bag, but you'd still like to have a more personal interaction or wish to contribute a segment on the sidecar, feel free to send us an audio message by way of Anchor. That's a free and easy app to use. So, until next time, take care out there. Please wash your hands, wear a mask, stay healthy, and remember, life's too short not to live in the past. Take it easy out there, everybody. <laughs>